Welcome to the U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast, the legal English podcast for non-native English speakers that helps you improve your English listening, improve your legal English vocabulary, and build your knowledge of American legal culture. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to remind you that U.S. Law Essentials offers online legal English and online U.S. law courses. Our courses are designed for students, bar exam candidates, attorneys, and translators. If you're interested in learning more, please contact Daniel at daniel at uslawessentials.com or visit uslawessentials.com and join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. And now, today's episode. Welcome to U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Horowitz. And today we continue our series of interviews with multilingual lawyers with our special guest, Guanxiang Xu. Uh, and let me tell you briefly about Guanxiang. Uh, he is originally from China. And Guanxiang, what part of China are you from? I'm from Nanjing. And now he works at the law firm of Simpson, Thatcher and Bartlett in Palo Alto, California where he uh, focuses on executive compensation and benefits practice as an associate. Um, he completed his undergraduate degree at the College of William and Mary in Virginia in 2014 and his JD at UCLA in 2017. Uh, then he worked as a litigation associate at Fraley and, Fraley and Associates in Los Angeles for a year before doing his tax LLM at New York University School of Law, which he finished in 2020, after which he started his current job at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Uh, welcome to the show, Guanxiang. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Uh, very nice to have you here. Um, and the first question I just want to ask you is, what languages do you speak? Uh, I speak Mandarin Chinese, and uh, that's the language that I grew up with. So. And English. Yeah, and English, of course, because we're talking <laughs> in it right now. And, yeah. and at, what age, at what age do you feel like you, you learned English? Or how would you describe how you learned English? I mean, as a Chinese student, I grew up in the public Chinese school system. I think we started the English education pretty young. Me, I think it was starting fifth grade in elementary school. Uh, and uh, it was one of the most one of the most important uh, subjects on the uh, like the, the school entrance exam from elementary school to the, the junior high and from junior high to high school. Um, so I would say I knew that it was important to learn English from a very young age. But I wouldn't say I really learned English, uh, especially given the first year I was in the United States back in 20, 2008, uh, when I really need to use English as my daily language. And I realized uh, my level of English was not good. Uh -huh. I think it took me at least two months to really start understanding what people were saying uh -huh. in, in daily conversations. What, what happened in 2008? You were, you were doing an exchange? 
Yes, I was an exchange student uh, in high school. So I spent a year uh, staying with a family uh, in a suburb around Atlanta, Georgia, and I attended a uh, public high school as a junior for that year. Oh, and what, what was your impression of public high school in the U.S. coming from China? Uh, it, it was very different. Uh, <laughs> I would say the emphasis on uh, uh, math and math-related subjects are, are, are much more uh, higher in China. Are much yeah. higher? Uh, yeah, so, so in comparison in the U.S. was much more relaxed. So I remember in the math class that people saw me like I'm this crazy person who knows a lot of stuff, but really, but really that's what pretty much every one of us learned as a Chinese student back in China. So that was my biggest impression. That's kind of like Superman coming to Earth, and everybody thinks, "Oh, he's so strong," but back on his on his right. planet, yeah. everybody was like that. Right, well, so only like math or physics and stuff. Right. <laughs> I have a, um, there's a LLM student uh, in one of my classes who's from Korea and he's living here in the US now um, while he's studying and he brought his kids with him and his children go to local elementary schools here in Maryland and I think they're, they, they love it because they say it's so much more fun and so much easier and so much less work than, than what they had to do in Korea in their elementary schools in Korea. Yeah, that I don't doubt it. Yeah. All right. I mean, are you glad you had that experience or do you do you do you feel like you lost something by by not getting that that extra studying in at that higher level? Um no, because I think by the time I actually um started my exchange program, I I think I've learned enough <laughs> under the Chinese system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do appreciate what I learned. Um, and uh, I kind of, I was just talking to my friends a couple of days ago about how I wanted to raise my own kid that at this time I still want them to have at least part of that, like that part of the, that part of the Chinese education. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want my kids to, go through only U.S. education. So I think that that part is actually pretty valuable. Uh-huh. And, and do you remember a point, at t- point in time when you um, sort of felt, was there any one moment or something happened and you thought, hey, I really, I really understand this. I can, I can really communicate in English now. Yeah, it's, it's yes, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but um, so there was this little mishap with my program. Um, so I didn't realize the family that I was staying with for the uh, for the first two months, roughly, was not actually supposed to have me for the whole year. They were supposed to be the tem- temporary family. But I think one of the persons on, in the uh, exchange program she like she ended up just bringing all the kids into the U.S. I guess based on that, she, she gets some sort of commission. Uh-huh. But and she promised this these families that they will all only stay with them for just a couple months. 
but then 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 she disappeared so whoa I, my whole family sort of just was stuck with me and i didn't realize that until maybe it was the the, the third or the fourth month i was with them <laughs> so and they they explained it to you or you were asking about it or something i think they tried to explain it to me before i uh-huh. think <laughs> but i never understand it <laughs> but like eventually i did so and were they were happy to have you for the whole year or the whole period? I mean, it wasn't ex- expected, like, but uh, it was not bad. Oh, okay. not bad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, and then you went on to college in the U.S. and law school. That's right. And by that time, was it easier to to? to communicate, to do the classes, or was it still a, a challenge from a language perspective? Uh, I think in college, if it is like a um, social science class, it, it is, it was, especially the first, first year and, you know, the first two years maybe. Uh-huh. I remember the first semester I took a sociology class and there was a lot of uh, reading materials uh-huh. uh, maybe well then they maybe it's no longer a lot for me right now but at the time I remember it was a huge amount of reading and I tried to go through it but oftentimes I ended up just spending two hours going through 30 pages and after that I didn't remember anything that I read. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty tough at the beginning, but I, I, I decided to be a history major. Um, so that's a social science. Yes. <laughs> I think history was a little bit, a little bit easier uh-huh. other than uh, uh, compared to like sociology, which is more, Theoretical, I would say. Yeah, sure. It's uh, history is more fact based, especially if you already know some of the history. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, 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 I stuck it out. I, 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 I was like, you know, going into going through a U.S. college education, you must learn to, you know, use English to study, to read, and to write. So, and did you have any any strategies or or tricks or anything you tried to that, that to to help you improve your English, or was it just a matter of spending time with everything, looking things up in the dictionary, talking to people, and eventually it just sort of started coming together? I think it's you just have to stick with it, um, and. Um, Sometimes, if um, the professor allows me, I will record the, the the lecture, so I have, uh, so I will be able to listen to them again uh-huh. and uh, make more notes. Cause like I couldn't make notes and try to understand what the professor was saying at the same time. That was yeah. a very yeah. difficult skill to learn. For me. And then, and then, and then in law school as an international student. What was that experience like? Um, I so I wasn't like 
I realized that before going to law school, I wasn't fully prepared, uh, looking back from now, uh-huh. that uh, I wish I had seen even like one of those cliche legal uh, TV shows uh-huh. that I know what the stereotypes or like what's to be expecting. Uh, like the first year is going to be crazy difficult. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that the first year grade mattered. <laughs> uh, you didn't. You didn't even know enough to be scared. Exactly, and that cost me a lot. Um, how, so, so how did you? How did you decide to go to law school? Uh, it was. It was not a hard decision. Like I was a history and a math major in college, and I remember. One summer, I think it was my junior year, my father was asking me, like, what do you want to do after college? Uh, and uh, apparently, I don't want to be a history professor, so I wouldn't go on to a more academic route, like getting a master or PhD in history or in math. And at the time, a lot of my peers were doing computer science either or accounting or some of them were in finance slash consulting. So that's basically the options for you. And there weren't a lot of people doing law school. Um, So I was like, I was a history major. I, I think I can get in one of those law schools. And I heard lawyers got paid pretty well. So yeah, that was not it. So I st- then I started to prepare for the LSAT and then applied. So, so yeah. So that, that does sound like the classic American college to law school experience. Although the, the more traditional one is, well, I don't like blood, so I'm not going to be a doctor and I'm not good with numbers. So I'm not going to go to business school. So I'll go to law school. Right. But right. you were good with numbers. You, you were a math major. Right. But I, I also figured that, you know, being a math major that I was trying to be logical and that sort of, that skill is sort of still very valuable in in law. So. And let me ask you another question about your language. Do you, when you do a math problem in your head, can you do it in English in your head or does it switch to Chinese in your head? If it's math, it's pretty much Chinese. I mean, because I mean, really doing math, especially we're talking about like more elementary side of math. It's um, what I learned uh, when in, in in Chinese, and uh, and really it's it's more symbols and numbers than other than um, like languages. But that's a question that my father always asked me, like when you think of. Not, not, not math problems, but like when you're thinking of like a, a maybe an issue, do you think of in like when you think, do you think in Chinese or do you think in English? And I get the impression that he always thought that if you are really becoming good at English, then you should have all your um, thought process in English. But I think he stopped asking me that a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah, I think it's complicated. I think some things, I mean, you could, you, you know, you probably have had dreams in English at this point. I know that's common, right? Yeah, I, I probably did. 
because um, I, I still remember the first time I had a dream where some where there was Japanese speaking in my dream and I woke up and I was so excited because I thought, wow, I just dreamed of Japanese. But I think the math question, doing math in your head sort of gets gets even more at, you know, uh, do you favor one language? Even if you are bilingual, is there one that's that's sort of still the stronger one? Yeah, um, I think for math is still Chinese. Now, what about, what about, um, so your, your, your current legal practice is executive compensation and benefits. Um, how, how would you explain that to, um, to your grandmother or to uh, a 10 year old child? How would you explain what you do? It's, it's kind of difficult to explain to my grandmother for sure. Cause <laughs> like this, first of all, this whole practice is, considered pretty niche even even in the u.s huh. uh i mean if you're in like m&a or capital markets by by m&a you mean mergers and acquisitions yeah okay. mergers and acquisitions or like doing ipos and stuff like i would say most the chinese people that i knew probably know those terms um but exact comp and the benefits there's really not a like commonly used term for them so oh, i have to so i have to i mean you can translate it but it's kind of awkward <laughs> how does it how does it translate i mean exact comp would be like you helping these executives of these big companies design their compensation packages uh-huh. and, and employment and employment agreement separation agreement stuff like that and on the benefits side, you look at the 401k. I mean, like, I don't think Chinese people know what 401k is, but. Right. That's a specific provision right. of U.S. Yeah. tax law or U.S. Right. right. But they know, like, what the idea of a pension plan is. Right. And uh, so I think to my grandmother, I know that uh, Alibaba is uh, our, my law firm's client. Oh, and that's perfect. a big name in yeah. China. So yeah, sure. I would just simplify as like, you know, our practice group would help Jack Ma design his, you know, comp packages, like how much stop auctions to get, uh-huh. stuff like that. I mean, that's like very simplified version of what I do. But, you know, if I if I want my grandmother to have a understanding of my practice, that's usually what I do. But when I was uh, when my brother just after college in the '90s, he went off to Hungary and he ended up working with an internet company at the beginning of the dot com boom. Mm-hmm. And then when he'd come home, my grandmother, who was in her '90s would ask what he does and he'd try to explain it. But of course she didn't understand the internet. And eventually he would just say, computers, grandma, I work with computers. And that was like all he could say. <laughs> so um, now how would you explain what you do to a young, uh, a young law school student who's thinking about maybe doing a, a tax LLM? Um, say we, there are two parts of our practice. One is with respect to these executives. Um, so we look at their equity incentive packages 
their employment, their severance, um, their change in control agreement, if any. And uh, another part of the practice is more towards the general employees of the companies. Um, so we look at their um, health and uh, um, welfare plans and maybe like um, severance plans in general. Um, so I would say that as a exec comp and benefits attorney, you're the specialist on a legal team that's on a, say, an m deal that you look at the compensation and benefits aspect of the deal and make sure that everything uh, aligns in those areas. And I would say that um, it's sort of exciting that being a junior comp and benefits attorney that you get the opportunity to start to do substantive law a little bit earlier than just a regular corporate associate. Um, and uh, you get the opportunity to be on those meetings as a junior person uh, with the management or the the or, or the like our clients the the the, the PE firms or because um, those meetings usually happen just between the the client and um, uh, the partners, but I think oftentimes there's only one junior associate on that call and it's usually uh, from our team. So that's sort of interesting. Oh, did you, did you know that when you got into the field that you would probably be getting more into substantive law at an earlier? I didn't know that, No, but it's a, it's a, it's a good surprise. Now you did a tax LLM at NYU. Um, how much of what you're doing is tax related, would you say? Do, do, would you characterize yourself as a tax attorney? I would not characterize myself as a tax attorney. Because uh, on the deals, we have tax specialists as well. And uh, they handle mo the most tax issues. I would say, based on my current experience, it's about like 10 to 15% of really tech stuff. And it's really uh, like not general tech stuff, uh, like only uh, text that's related to comp. So like 280G and 83B election. What's a, what's a, 280, what's a 280G? 280G, okay, let me explain this. I'll try to explain this. So, this, is good, this is the good stuff. Um, so when say on an M&A deal that, uh, this P firm tries to buy this company and that's usually a event of change of control. Um, and, uh, oftentimes the current management would get paid a lot of money, say transaction bonuses, um, or accelerated uh, vesting of their equities 
So 280G is this law that says that an executive, I'm oversimplifying this, but an executive uh, and a a change of control cannot get, not cannot, but they don't want you to get more, three times more than your um, W-2 income. So say if your W-2 income is one million and uh, in this transaction, you're paid total, everything combined, four millions. That's more than three times one million. And to and uh, under 280G, you will pay a um, penalty tax of 20% on the part where it exceeds your one-time uh, W-2 income. So four minus one would be three million. You pay 20% on the three million, which is a lot. And uh, people don't like that. And at the same time that the company did not like lose, I think that 20% of deduction as well. So it's, it's a really bad situation. Um, but there's this like cleansing mechanism that if 75% of the shareholder of the company agreed that it's okay to pay you this much, and then you won't pay the penalty tax or lose the 20% of deduction. Oh, wow. So that's really technical. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that was the simple version. That was the very simple version, yes. Wow. And were you doing that math? in your head in Chinese just now, or was that all in English in your head? That was in English, actually, because oh, nice. I learned all this stuff in English. Yeah. So, so I wouldn't know the terms for, for these in Chinese. So, so your dad your dad will be impressed. <laughs> um, yeah, so those things are like, they recur, like the, that's an issue on almost all the deals. Uh-huh. So yeah, that's definitely tax, but, uh, we usually handle that. But if it's like a more general text issue, like in, in, like concerning the structure of the, like the structure of the deal, like how you put like partnership above corporations, stuff like that, at least as a junior, you don't, you don't do that. Okay. And even with the 280G analysis, really with the numbers, the attorneys don't do them but you have to understand them and review the analysis. But really the work was done by the accounting firms. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you don't actually putting the numbers in a spreadsheet. Uh-huh. Calculate, like, especially in terms of like investing the accelerated investing of equities, uh-huh. like you have to take into account of like the, the value of time. So, and those numbers are like a lot. So they don't expect you to actually do those numbers. But you have to, when they present you with the analysis, you have to be able to understand it and uh, to do your best to review if there's like any big errors in it. Uh-huh. And you have yeah. to be able to communicate about to it. Correct. To your client. When you, when you took your tax LLM program, did you have a, a favorite course or was there a particular course that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I, I really uh, enjoyed um, international tax. Um, 
with Professor King. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, it was, I would say, one of the most challenging course courses in the program. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I do love a challenge, so that's part of it. And also, like, ta- international tax is this room area that and there's no like overarching authority like all these nations they design their tax systems independently and uh, like they didn't have in their mind when they were designing that how these systems would interact with each other Uh so that so when you actually like trying to solve issues or, you know, trying to achieve certain goals on that level, you need a lot of creative uh, creativity. And um, I've heard I think that. That's, yeah. I've heard so that I said think, about tax lawyers, that that's actually, even though it doesn't sound like it ends up being one of the most creative um, fields of law to be in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of international tax, I think they're, if if you really get into the practice of it, I think there really is a lot of the demand for creativity. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think, and also professor, my professor for that class was, I liked him a lot. Like uh-huh. I think he was really good at explaining difficult concept uh, in relatively simple languages. Uh-huh. I think is a very valuable skill, either as a professor, a law professor, or as an attorney. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's something lawyers, you know, constantly have to do to be able to take the complex and somehow put it in, in simpler forms. Do you, do you have or, any advice for somebody who's, who's about to start a tax LLM program or maybe who's thinking about a tax LLM program? Okay, so based on my knowledge, if you want to get a textile program, if you want to get a degree at NYU or Georgetown, which is are the two, the top two schools for 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 textile, um, understand that you probably already know this, but uh, understand that not all the graduates from these programs get to do tax law after, like get to do pure tax law after graduation. I think a substantial amount of us uh, ended up doing executive compensation and benefits work. Um, But that's not to say that our practice is not as fun or as challenging as tax law, but uh, I think that's a, an, an important thing to, to know before you get into the program. But other than that, I would say, at least for NYU, I think they have a very good uh, platform for tax graduates to find jobs. Uh-huh. So uh, if you or like me who missed opportunities in your JD 
um, TextLM at NYU slash Georgetown would be a good choice if you want to redeem yourself and get another shot at especially big loss. Um, but that's based on my experience. Oh, that, that's really terrific perspective and I think very helpful for perspective um, uh, for me to understand as well. Um, and do you, let me ask you one last question. Do you, have you ever been given any advice by somebody else in your life that, that you found particularly helpful? Uh, regarding TextLLMs? Uh, life in general. Oh, so TextLLMs could be life in general. I, I do have one to share though. That's yeah, uh, go ahead. mostly based on my experience. Um, I went straight to law school from college and uh, I regret it because I think especially for people who has been good at academic work since young and through college, some of us tend not to fully understand how to, um, what being a professional means at that point when you graduate college, at least for me. So I thought it would be much more beneficial for me to actually find a job after college, even for just a year to experience how, what the life is like, you know, working as a professional or working in the corporate um, environment and to earn a salary. And then you will have a very different perspective on the three year of legal education you're about to get. So because my experience, I, when I transitioned from college to law school, I didn't realize that it, it's going to be different and it means different. Like after college, you're sort of still like that older teenager, but in, teen, in law school or after law school, then you become a, an attorney and um, it, it, it just means very different. So, so my advice would be, I mean, if you have the opportunity or the, I would say the luxury to spend a year um, between college and your professional schools, do it and you will get a much more comprehensive perspective on, and you, you, will, you will feel happier when you go back to school. You'll like, appreciate it more. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll, you will appreciate it more. Yeah, so, I would agree with that. I would yeah. agree with that. Okay. Well, Wansheng, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. It's been a real pleasure having you on the, on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Nice talking to you. Okay, so we'll include any relevant links from this episode in the show notes, including a LinkedIn profile for Guanxiang for anybody who wants to connect with him. Um, and I wanna remind our listeners to subscribe to the US Law Essentials podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Himalaya, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen to all episodes on uslawessentials.com. And if you have any questions, comments, reactions, ideas, et cetera, we always love hearing from our listeners. You can contact us by email at daniel at uslawessentials.com or through the U.S. Law Essentials Facebook group or LinkedIn group. So thanks to everybody for listening to U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast and stay essential.